Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. My next guest is Zane Hassan, a lovely bloke based out of Florida in the US who has a very different take on how to buy, grow and sell a business. In fact, I'm going to go as far as saying that I actually think this episode is different to every other episode we've we've done just because of the model that Zane employs and the way he goes about it. Now, he, he has done the full cycle, um, buying, growing, selling, etc. But it did start with him growing his own business and ultimately selling it to private equity. But the lessons he learned, and some of them were quite expensive financially, helped Zane realize that there was a different way of doing business. He saw how well private equity executed on not only his deal, but a bunch of others. And he's taken what is really the best out of that private equity model and adapted it to his own purposes. He's out there now doing amazing things in the insurance broking world. Really, I mean, he's a boutique professional advisory firm, but he's growing in a very, very special way. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this episode. I know I did. This is Zane Hassan. Hi, Zane. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I appreciate you having me. Oh, my pleasure indeed. Uh, for those listening, uh, Zane's calling in from, uh, from Florida. It's uh, past nine o'clock in the evening over there. So, Zane, appreciate you making time at such a late, late time. It's my pleasure. I literally just put my four and five-year-old to bed and was like, I need to get to that podcast. <laughs> oh well that's cool if the kids wake up and you know we hear some calling out for dad i totally appreciate if you've got to go grab them <laughs> i think i should be okay <laughs> cool cool um i know you know zane you're a you know, strike me as a classic sort of entrepreneur you're building you're buying you're growing you're doing all these sort of cool things that you know really relate ultimately to what we talk about on this podcast um but I know we're going to chat a little bit about one of your companies, uh, which was National Insurance Consulting Group that you founded and grew and ultimately sold to private equity. But um, maybe I could get you to kick off, though, a little bit and just, just for our audience, give them a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to starting that company. Yeah, happy to. Um, I mean, so my background, I'll, I'm a pretty young guy, so I'll just start at the beginning because my you know, overall history is rather short. Um, but so I, I graduated from UG, the University of Georgia as a pre-med major. Um, I had kind of a, an entrepreneurial DNA simply because when I was in a, in my neighborhood, when I grew up as a kid, I actually created this menu where I could, I would sell, um, chicken sandwiches to the parents that didn't make lunches for their kids. We didn't make oh, much wow. money in the process, but my mom helped me distribute menus to the neighborhood. Um, and then it was one, one uh sandwich it was a cajun chicken sandwich and it was like wrapped and ready for people to go right so i kind of was always with that mentality of saying like um let me try to help add value so wherever i saw a problem i was like maybe i can help fix it 
Um, and I'm not allergic to money. So if there was a way to make money in the process, of course, that was also valuable. Um, I think actually, and because I graduated pre-med, which is sort of like if you grew up in the, with parents that are Middle Eastern, they're going to want you to kind of graduate pre-med. And, and that's me self-deprecating on my own culture, right? So I'm not, that can't be considered um, discriminatory if it's self-discriminatory. Right? No, I'll share, I'll share with you. My, my <laughs> wife is born in Australia, but of, but of Indian descent. And so I've, the, the running joke in our family is all, all Indians, they want you to marry a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. You know, like it's you know, maybe if you're a banker, they'll let you in. But uh, <laughs> so, so I understand the, the mentality. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's so true. And, and I mean, for me, it was a, you know, I graduated pre-med. I worked at a hospital. It was already too late for me to kind of change majors. But when I was working at the hospital, people would come in and I'd kind of see like, okay, you know, some people were diagnosed where we couldn't do anything about it. And I was so, you know, extroverted that the energy that would kind of get sucked out of me, knowing that, you know, there's nothing we can do, that I would be thinking about that person. And I'd spend an hour and a half working in the hospital, but it felt like I spent two days there. And I was like, this is not going to work for me, right? So, um, and interestingly enough, my brother was in, in the property insurance business and he was like, you know, why don't you look into the health insurance like carriers? Um, and I'm like, why would I do that? And he was like, well, you're pre-med. So maybe there's some correlation there. And he was like, and it, in the insurance world, it's pretty entrepreneurial, which sounded really boring to me, right? Health insurance. I'm like, that doesn't sound attractive at all. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I went and Cigna was uh, recruiting out of my career fair at UGA. So I was like, you know what? I'll go talk to them. And uh, they're the only firm I talked to. Um, I was in a fraternity at UGA. And so that's one of the things where what I, I realized was you meet people. And when you meet people, you kind of join a fraternity. And I, I led our recruitment. And you joined, if you joined our fraternity, it was because you just like you join a leader or you join a manager or you leave a manager. It's sort of the same way. Right. So it was very sales oriented with Cigna. Everyone I met were the kind of people that I felt comfortable. It was kind of like almost an extension of my fraternity to the real world. That's kind of at least how it felt. So I continued through the interview process, joined Cigna. Um, and then they took 22 people from around the country and they brought them to their headquarters in Connecticut where they spent, we spent 16 weeks Ironically, that's where I met my wife. Um, she's from Texas, and so it was straight out of college. But um, at the end of that, they do a fantasy draft ranking, right? So all these VPs come in. Um, fortunately, I was ranked number one. And so what that meant was they said, okay, now there's all these places in the country you can go. Where do you want to go? And I was like, I want to go wherever the, there is the most opportunity. And they said, well, South Florida has the most opportunity, but that's because we have very low market share, and it's really hard. You're really the concept is you work through insurance brokers um, and you're trying to teach insurance brokers the value of Cigna. And I was like, All right, I'm, I'm never one to be afraid of a challenge. So I'm happy to take on South Florida and South Florida sounds like an awesome place to live. So I moved from Georgia to South Florida. Um, very quickly, I was able to pick up Cigna. It was really, you know, just working with brokers. So they kind of, it wasn't cold calling as much as it was um, calling people with a brand that they knew. Right. And I was calling brokers who they kind of have no choice, but to at least get your quote. They don't have to write any business with you. That's where the relationship development comes in. But, you know, very, very quickly on, I mean, by my first year, I was rookie of the year. Um, what I learned, though, at Cigna was that in America, the you know cost of healthcare it's not only 
rising at an unsustainable pace, but America's got a broken healthcare system. Now, let me explain that. When I say it's broken, if you were to talk to anyone in the healthcare system, they'd say it works perfectly. Shareholders would say it works perfectly, right? Because it works for the benefit of shareholders, but a consumer and, the, and now the physicians, that's where it does not work. Um, I mean, if you look at an employer, the fact is employees today, um, if they're looking at you know an, a normal wage increase of 3%, well, health insurance is eating up that entire 3%. And so, you know, we've seen health insurance spiral out of control in terms of the cost um, per employee per year. And uh, the share prices of, of the sort of the blues United Signet, and I kind of show you that. Um, so what I learned is that here's the concept of how an insurance broker makes their living, right? So they go to companies and they tell the company, I'm going to do what's in your best interest. Hire me so I can negotiate down your rates. So now as the CEO of any company, let's think about this. I'm about to hire somebody if I'm hiring this broker. Now, who do they work for? Well, I'm not paying them. I don't even know how they get paid if I'm the CEO of any company. So what they get paid on is three things. They get a percentage of the premium of the the insurance carrier, right? They get bonuses for the profitability to the insurance carrier and bonuses for the retention to the insurance carrier. How do those help me as a business owner? All three of those actually go against my best interest. So as I'm working at Cigna, one of the early renewals I got was a 3% renewal. I called the broker and told him, and he said, well, I already talked to the CEO and HR, and they're expecting a 17. Can you increase it to a 17%? I was like, I don't know. Uh, I was relatively new. I said, let me call my boss. Call my boss. He said, great. That's a great broker partner. Absolutely. And so I, as I go through the motions and I'm, I'm sitting there listening to how these brokers are explaining what they do to the employer and saying, you know, we have such a great relationship with Cigna. We might be able to get this to a 12% increase. And the employer at this point is saying, you know, we're going to have to lay off 20, 30 people. It's about a 350 employee company in order to make that um, increase work. And as I'm sitting there listening and, and I've got underwriting training, I know how the rates are developed and I know that that's not the real solution. So I was like, wait, this is a serious problem. And the more people I talked to, I was like, there's got to be a firm out there that sits on the same side of the table as the CEO. But there wasn't. So that was what spawned me building. And I, I didn't call it a brokerage, but it was a brokerage. I called it National Insurance Consulting Group because I wanted to make sure we were a consulting firm. And our model was super simple. It was, how are we different? Pay for performance. We get paid by the client, and so we are. You know, we we didn't have any of the restrictions of being um, contingent or you know reliant on the industry norms. And so, literally, I mean, America has taught itself that it's that this broken model is the right way to go. Um, but just simply through education, we were able to scale. It was not easy. The first eighty-three meetings were rejections. Fifteen months in, no revenue. Right. Um, so I'd gone from I was number two in the country at Cigna. And I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be so easy because I had helped brokers win so many big accounts. What I underestimated was how hard it was for them to build that relationship with the CEO that they got me to come present to. Right? Yes. And so what I ended up realizing in the process, because again, I'm 27 at this time. And I'm going to companies that are spending 10 million bucks on health insurance. And I'm saying, fire your publicly traded company with a team of 40 
uh, or well, more like a team of 4,000, but 40 assigned to your company and hire me and my executive assistant because I can better manage that $10 million spend. Right. And so that what that, that didn't go over so well. What I realized was, you know what? All I need to do though was figure out who had the relationships already, show them what I could do. And so I actually got in connect with in contact with the chief revenue officer of the New York Times. Um, and fortunately he was interested in what I had to say. He flew down from New York to South Florida. Um, and then he watched me deliver the type of results where we saved a staffing company, um, about $800,000. They had 400 employees. He saw that. And then he was like, um, so he was scheduled that night to go back. That was our first client, by the way. Um, so he, on his first day meeting me where I, I intentionally had him come down and meet with the owner of this business because I was like, you know, if she sees him, it'll validate that. Yes. It's just me and my executive assistant. Well, and the chief revenue officer of the New York times. Right. And that's good enough. That was good enough for me. And so she fired a publicly traded broker. She hired me. She knows she's my first client. Um, and then, you know, I called her back that night and I said, Hey, you know, so his name was guy, guy holiday, the chief revenue officer of the New York times. And I was like, guy isn't convinced. Um, I told him not to, to leave tomorrow because he was going to go back to New Jersey. Um, and I was like, I told him not to leave, but he's not convinced. Can you refer me to anyone else? And she set up 13 appointments for me. We closed 10 out of those 13. Um, so he actually, he stayed down for 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, he said, you know what? I'm leaving the New York Times and I want to come join and help you run the company. And wow. So he became my president. And that was... For 12 months, all, all he did was walk into everyone he knew, which was just about everybody, and say, I have this insurance savant. Like the, He's the biggest genius you got to meet, and he can actually seriously impact your bottom line. Um, and he brought me into every company he knew, and, and we just closed deal after deal. Wow, that's mate. That's a fantastic story. It, um, yeah, you remind me a little bit of Rod Drury from uh, the guy who founded Zero Accounting Software because his previous company had done a similar thing. You know, just sold to a couple of Fortune five hundreds and then sold to people who just could walk in the door to every other Fortune five hundred. It just, you know, having that kind of leverage is is just massive. I yeah, there's to me there's no question. I got. I, I, the preparation met the opportunity. That opportunity was the lucky conversation with him. Like when he called and my executive assistant answered and she was like, he says he's the chief revenue officer for the New York times. I'm like, I don't know why he's calling, but, but I'm excited. Like this is, this is the moment. And so it, to me, it ended up being something where, you know, literally four. So after a year, he was like, I don't know anything about insurance, but I've introduced you to everybody. Um, and I don't think I can add any more value to the company. By then we had quite a few staff and he was like, you know, I need to, I think you need to be able to fly your wings and, and kind of without me. And I was like, look, I mean, you've been a part of our company, at least if you're going to, if you don't want to keep doing this, I want you in the family. So I actually partnered him with my mom. They run a real estate investment firm and they've been running it, you know, 50, 50 partners since then. Um, and three years later, we be, we were the 667th fastest privately held company in America on the Inc. 5000. Um, and that's when publicly traded companies were coming to buy my firm. Um, that was when the first approach. So five years into forming the business, you know, we're being sought out to get acquired. And at that time, I was having my first child. 
I wasn't thinking of it as being sold. I was thinking like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to buy into a firm that has a lot more resources than we do. Um, you know, I learned my lesson that you really need a great advisory group to help you exit, you know, and, and that's, that's a plug for you, Simon, right? Because the, I learned Thank a lot you. of lessons uh, on going through that process on how critical it is to not only know why you're doing what you're doing, but to know what questions to ask, how businesses are valued. I mean, there's so many things that I learned. It was an expensive education because it didn't go as well as it was supposed to, right? But at the end of the day, it was, uh, I always view everything as, you know, it's all an education. So, I mean, I still went through, I was able to, you know, while I was running that company and, and before I'd sold it, I'd started a, uh, a sort of very, an ancillary payroll company. Um, I cross-sold that to 92% of our clients. And that was an excluded company. I had not, I was like, you know, I'm not going to sell both companies at the same time. I actually just closed on the sale of that company to um, a Stone Point backed uh, platform in August. So, you know, three months ago. Well done. Um, and so the, that whole experience of me joining what I'll call a, um, an acquire that didn't pan out the way I, it, it was expected to got me thinking about the fact that, you know what, there's a better way to acquire. Um, and so over the last two years, what I was doing was I said, you know, I'm going to take the time and I'm going to think about if, with, if I had done what I should have done, which was have the right advisors and have the end in mind, what would the ideal entrepreneurial model where you can grant autonomy to the entrepreneurs who have built successful businesses but you can allow them to do partnerships. So it's really servant leadership in my mind. It's less about corporate, less about me. Uh, it's all a partner-driven model. And to say, okay, I can help what I'll call any size firm become better. So our, the emphasis is on two, two types of, of businesses, the independent agency that can either bring value to our partners or the independent agency who we can bring enough value to those are the two types of firms we look for. Um, but when I began this, it was, you know, um, when you're really, really looking for deals, anybody looks good, right? And so I, I began by calling and educating um, the, a couple of firms. And then I said, you know what? I'm not going to go after just any firm. I said, I'm going to find the best firm I can find in the country the, with the best entrepreneur. And I'm just going to focus on that entrepreneur. And once I close that entrepreneur, just like the New York Times um, sort of reference, then everyone else will want to join. And so yeah. that's what I did. I called nice. them. Yeah. Sorry, sorry I'm kind of Yeah, no, I, I, I want to go back if I can a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I, I move quick. I move quick sometimes. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. I'm very, and I'm very keen to hear about what you're doing today because I think it's um, it's it's how I see a lot of business owners as they go through the journey. They shift gear at some point, understand the power and the leverage of you know growth via acquisition, and and how do you form those kind of strategic partnerships? So, but before you got there, you you made a point on it, and, and and you know thank you. I mean you're referencing the the value of having a team around you, people can help you on a process. But what can you tell us what happened in that initial deal? What what were some of the learnings? What what happened that made you feel like that? Yeah, so here's, uh, I'll back up and tell you the process. I did hire a banker. Um, bankers are different than advisors, right? So let me just, but this is what the banker model was. It was, okay, in our industry, uh, it's a very liquid industry. 
So it's like, you know, you're, they were like, okay, we're going to introduce you. Like, who do you want to sell to? Public, private, private equity backed, giant. And I was like, private equity backed only. Because at least what I had learned was that, you know, the, op- the second and third bite of the apple were opportunities if you rolled equity. So, so just to explain that for people listening, because some people won't get, get that. Um, so often when you're selling to a private equity group, they may not buy 100%. They may say to you, listen, you know, but part of this is a bit of a risk mitigation strategy for private equity because if they, if they buy 80% of your company, you still own 20%. Well, it's still in your best interest to make sure that the transition goes well, that the private equity firm is set up properly, that you transfer everything you can. And, of course, the carrot for you is... Um, that you get a second bite of the cherry that perhaps when they exit, you know, and I've even had guests on this show where the portion they were still holding on to in the end. More than the the whole. Yep. Correct. They got more money for the last 20% than they did for the first 80%. So so that's what you're describing there, Zane. Is that right? That you hung on to some shares? Yeah. And I'm glad you backed up because a lot, uh, and it's always good to remind me that sometimes the audience, um, you know, so as I went through this beginning process, I had understood not only what my, my margins and, and my EBITDA was, um, and my, but my pro forma adjusted EBITDA, meaning yes. I knew that if, you know, if for the, for the audience, if, if they, if we look at the, the financials and say, let's back out all personal expenses, let's back out anything that's a different owner. If it's not me, was going to run the business, what would the margins be then, right? What would the profit be then? And that's called the adjusted EBITDA. Um, Absolutely. What a lot of people don't know until they go through that process with a banker is, so where's the big, a biggest avenue you get is your salary reduction, right? That's a huge area, especially for bankers. They want you to sort of take the minimal salary. And if you're the entrepreneur, you're thinking, I don't know what the future looks like here. So if I'm getting a multiple of, I'll just say eight times, eight times of my earnings. And, and I, if I'm making a half a million dollar salary, but I could drop it to a hundred grand, that's 400 times eight, that's 3.2 million. I'm, I'm going to take off the table, right? Absolutely. So am I willing to do that? Well, yeah, I'm going to be willing to do that because that's cash up front, <laughs> right? That's minimal yeah, risk yeah. to me. But the reality is like, if I'm that, that model tends to happen when you don't believe that there's a likelihood of long-term longevity there. And it wasn't that I didn't believe it. It was that um, I got introduced to eight companies, um, eight one-hour management meetings. That's what they call them, right? So here's, here's what happened in each one of those. Nobody asked me, why are you looking to sell? Wow. Each, uh, each of the buyers came in and they did a one-hour pitch and literally my and I had just two members of my management team, one one was there for all of them and another a, a second was there for a couple. And literally we just sat there. And then at the very end, they're like, you know, hey, you know, great meeting you guys, because they had the 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 sim, the what the banker puts together, like the pitch book the banker puts together for the, the buyer. Yeah. So for those listening, a SIM is CIM, a confidential information memorandum. It's a it's a detailed kind of booklet or prospectus almost that gets used to help sell your business. So, yeah, yeah. Where, where they so a lot of the pre work right is you go through all the financials. Um, they sort of create the story in that SIM. I mean, when I read the SIM, I was like, man, this, this looks like a great business, right? It, it <laughs> yeah, was my yeah, own yeah. business, but. Um, because they do a good job with that um, and articulating the value of why you, why it would be um, valuable for a buyer. And so I went through it and I was reading through it and I'm like, man, this 
this is great. Awesome. Like this is good work. Right. And so I meet each one of the buyers and I'm thinking this will be a two way conversation. This is supposed to be a really big decision. And most people in their lives, they don't get a chance to sell two companies, right? That it's usually one, it happens once in their life. Um, and you don't have the luxury of making a mistake. Uh, cause if you do, it's sort of depressing and, and you don't have a lot of opportunities to make a, a turnaround. Well, and it could cost you a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. it could cost, and, and so I can say mine cost me a lot of money. That's absolutely true. Um, but it turned out to be the best thing that could have happened because I was young enough that I could look at the problem and it was an industry problem, meaning the banker approach that I had, and I'm not saying the banker I had was not a good banker. I'm saying that it takes more than just a banker. It takes the, the, the time in advance to say, what am I trying to do? Why am I selling my company? Because um, one of the things I heard that got me to take either the interest was if you t say no to an offer, um, like, so I'll just make it up. Let's say someone came to me and said, hey, we're going to offer you 15 million bucks for your business. And I say no, right? Then I'm saying I'd be willing to take $15 of my own money to buy my company at that moment. Because if I'm saying no, that's, that's exactly what I'm doing, right? Do you know, Zane, it's, uh, I had another guest on the, on the show. Um, in fact, I think we're both mutually connected with him on LinkedIn. It was Greg Alexander. But, um, you know, he, uh, he, he, I'm not just connected with him. He's, he is actually a, he's been a close mentor of mine. Um, oh, there you go. So I, I know Greg very well. And, man, his advice has been phenomenal. He's a guy who knows how to rock it, right? Like, I mean, he sold Absolutely his company knows. for, yeah, 10 times EBITDA, 162 million bucks. It was an amazing transaction. When he came on the show, one of his little piece of, pieces of advice that I've been sharing liberally with everybody who'll listen is that every business has two numbers, what it's worth to you and what it's worth to the market. And if at some point it's worth more to the market than it is to you, you should sell because at the end of the day, that dynamic can change overnight. And at the end, if it's worth more to the rest of the world, man, take the money you can do other things with it. You can start another business. You can reinvest it and in many cases, perhaps not even work at all if you don't want to. But there is a dynamic there and that dynamic shifts all the time, but depending on what's going on in the broader market. I That is an unbelievably astute piece of advice. And I'm in a market where right now we are at the highest valuations that we've ever seen, um, which could literally shift in a moment's notice, right? So um, I think that's where the concept of, of that, it's so relevant because like, uh, yeah, I, I'm now going to share that liberally with the whole world too. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're a business owner, one of the big questions you should be asking yourself is, what is this business really worth to me? And, and that's, a, by the way, is a deep personal question. It's not just about money because it factors in your life. It factors in all these important things about where you want to go and how you want to live and how you want to spend your time. So, you know, if you're unsure about some of that and you're unsure about maybe about what it's worth to you or what it's worth to the market and what sort of process to go through, please feel free to reach out. I mean, you can go to Exit Advisory. You can speak to anyone you like. I mean, even if you just want to get on a call with someone and ask some questions, there's no, you know, like do that. It's uh, sometimes you don't know what questions to ask of yourself when you're going through this process. So um, to that point, what you just described. So um, because I didn't have advisors and I went to a banker, the banker wanted to control the process. When I say control the process, here's what I mean. I didn't get to talk openly about 
you know, what I wanted to do. It was very, you know, I'm going to have 15 minutes to get these things done, move it along, wanted to move as fast as they could. And so all the things like that you, you would ask people to try to understand what they're looking for. Well, it's no different than what the insurance broker, what's the insurance broker gets paid based on a percentage of premium. The banker gets paid based on a percentage of a deal, right? So do they really look for the best fit for you? Um, I mean, you'd like to say they do, but their compensation would tell you otherwise. Yeah, it's con- they're conflicted, right? I mean, and look, don't get me wrong. When we sell di- transactions, we sell businesses. Yes, there is always a success fee component to things. But one of the things I've always always prided ourselves on is, you know, we're not called business sales or us. We're called exit advisory. And, and exit means different things to different people. Um, you know, we've had people come to us wanting to sell or asking us to sell. And then we've, after talking to them, realized they didn't want to sell. You know, they just didn't didn't know how to well, fix some of the, the problems. That's the advisory part because if you're yeah. advising people to it, you're actually helping them figure out here's the questions to think through. And that, I mean, even the podcast you have, like that, it's you wouldn't be having this if you weren't trying to share your your knowledge with the world, right? I mean, and that's one of the biggest things that that people can pick up is there are podcasts, there's content, there's people's experiences, and you can see a lot farther when you stand on the shoulders of giants. Greg Alexander's a giant, right? And so whether it's, you don't even have to know people personally, but if you find people who have been very successful, try to find their podcasts and things like that, you can hear so many like golden nuggets you can pick up. But one of the things that I didn't do in the first business um, was I didn't begin with the end in mind. I didn't know what the business meant to me, but it really, I knew it was, in my mind, something that I was going to be able to repeat if I wanted to. I That I had confidence in. Yeah, yeah. Can, can I ask a question? It might be a little bit left field and, and offbeat here. You but can always ask a question. Yeah, I'm, cu- I'm curious. Do, do you feel like... With your background, with your cultural background, you know, and, and, and we've, you know, we touched on this earlier, but I, I was there, was there an element of if I sell this business and it is some sort of a successful transaction, did, did, do you feel like your background, your culture, your wanting to impress parents or something or live up to some kind of expectation, did, did that stuff play into it for you? And without question. I mean, so like getting anything under an A was unacceptable in my my household. Um, yeah. The you know, and whether it came to sp- even sports and basketball, like yeah, you know, it was. Uh, I remember like when the, just the idea because when my parents both came, they both worked really long hours, and they went like they didn't have um, the what I'll call the luxury of if they failed, having someone there to swoop them up. Right. So that's what they provided me. They provided me with the opportunity to take a risk where I knew if, if I did fail hypothetically, um, and I'm a hard worker, like really hard worker and, and resilience to me, like I have no call reluctance. I have no problem with rejection. And, um, and I don't care if the world does or doesn't like me. I just care that I know that I'm bringing value. Right. So like to me, I can easily cancel out the haters because they'll always be there. But I try to surround myself with people that actually want to bring you up, and and who and I can and I can, I feel like I have a pretty good sense to be able to quickly judge whether or not they're authentic about it. And I didn't always have that, right? So I mean, I've gone through my share of partners and and people that I brought in that I trusted and shouldn't have. 
But like now I feel like that's become astute because I learned through some very expensive lessons, but there's no question that now, so there's two factors. One was the, what I'll call the beginning of my career was all about showing my parents that, you know, what they, they raised someone that was bringing value and doing incredible things. After that first deal, it shifted from what I'll call more focus on me to a complete focus on everybody else. And that was like at a young, it's still, it wasn't age oriented, but it happened. It coincided right when I became a dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so now the model of what I'm doing today is I know how I can take a business, an entrepreneur in our industry and, and triple the value of their business without them having to, transform who they are they can keep their brand name they can keep everything that because to, to the in our industry there's 35 or more private equity backed consolidators that's a lot of competition that's very unique right and it's obviously supply and demand drive valuations and when the supply side it, or sorry when the demand side is all private equity institutional capital i mean that's uh Hence, I meet eight firms, one hour each, and I have eight letters of intent. Um, right, so it was it wasn't hard to to get deals. That's unique in our industry, and I would say most industries don't have that luxury because you know if you find a lot of industries, it's like you're lucky if you can even have a business that's sellable. Yep, absolutely. So you know the quality of your business, having enough ramp and runway time to prepare yourself for this kind of thing. Um, understanding where what the big macro, big picture is. You know, I keep saying to people, look, we're all small boats in a very big ocean, right? Like you could be the best boat in the world, but if the big wave of the market is coming at you in the opposite direction, you are not gonna going to fight down. that. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. So how do you how do you position yourself to be to be in the best place and to have the most options? But you know, for goodness sake, like if you see the wave coming and you see the timing is there, you got to know when to be able to pull the trigger, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think the more important part is you got to know that you've got the people, um, the team around you to be able to talk through it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cause like this concept of what we're doing now is, is all I'm doing is I went to, it's like, okay, instead of, so I didn't have the capital to go buy a bunch of firms. I yep. went to, so I went so, to, so just to so sorry to cut across you, but just to loop people in so they, they can join the dots here. So, you exited, you sold National Insurance Consulting Group. Um, you've been through this amazing sort of life learning experience and obviously had some had some financial reward along the way as well. But you've then gone and started another company and you're kind of flipping the model. You know, you've seen how the private equity guys have done it and done it well, and now you're deploying some of those methodologies yourself, right? That's Yeah, that's exactly right. So it wasn't my intent. My intent was to join the buyer um, because they brought me on, and then to, I was to take a leadership role. I I, t- I I rolled a large amount of the deal purchase price in the in the stock, um, and let, you know I guess thirteen months in, um, I'll suffice it to say we parted ways. Can I ask quickly on that the, that that company that you took the shares in as part of your payment or consideration were they a listed company or privately held privately held private yeah, equity you said backed. private equity right so yeah so and and look, and look for those listening like often 
the exit strategy for private equity is often to either list it or then do an even bigger strategic industry play to somebody who's bigger than they are. But, you know, it just, it just touches on your comment before about having an end game in mind because you've sold. But if it's not listed, selling those shares can be hard, right? It's, it's, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. You can't, you can't do yeah. it based on when you want to do it. Right. It's subject yeah. to what I'll call private equities life cycle, which is usually five to seven year investments. And so questions that like if you're going to sell to a private equity buyer that I learned after the fact were, OK, where are you in with your current financial sponsor, i.e. the current private equity firm that's backing the, the buyer? Where is that? How long? When did they first invest in you? Right. And how is How are you performing? Um, you know, and what is called the multiple uninvested capital. I mean, these are questions that you want to ask because it helps you understand when liquidity might come. And I say might because there's no guarantees, right? But the concept of, and then, you know, understanding, okay, what's their, what I call, what is your investment thesis? I want to know what, what do they believe they can accomplish and why? Um, I didn't ask any of those questions the first time around. Yeah, it's it, and and look, and this is the thing. I mean, you don't know, right? And it sounds like the, the investment banker you had was looking at getting the deal done. He saw that as his job is just get the transaction done. But it's uh, it, it's funny, isn't it? Until sometimes you've walked a path, you don't know necessarily. Well, once again, what questions to ask or what what's important to you until you <laughs> you've come out the other side. Yeah, I feel like in general in life, right? We only we don't know what we don't know. Totally. Period. So the best thing we can do is try to find people who would theoretically know and try to ask. Right. And then if there's people who you know are aware, then the best money you can spend, especially as an entrepreneur, is on it on the advice that you can get when it's there's no conflict of interest on that advice. Um, and then oftentimes you, what you can find is at the, at the end of the day, when people are consulting now today, we I mean, I still hired a banker on what I did now. I hired a banker. The only difference was on this one. It was, you know, saying, "Hey, are you interested in rolling your fee into equity?" Because I'm, I'm now not trying to use capital. I'm trying to use what I'll call the the private equity type model. Which what and what do I mean by that? And I'll simplify it drastically. It's all private equity is doing when they're buying your business is they're using your value of your business. They have relationships with uh, Wall Street. And they take debt on, out to buy your company. So they're using your company to buy your company. And that now, so as I just think about what I just said, if I'm an entrepreneur and it's the first time I'm hearing that, I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because they have these predetermined relationships. They're not short, right? They've, they've established a, a long-term relationship. You're not the only one they're doing it with. They likely have multiple other investments. And so the the banks, which are not like Bank of America, I mean these are these are institutional financing firms, are comfortable lending to them, knowing that they're going to go through the due diligence. I mean they're going to look at what your actual earnings are, and then they'll you know they'll let them borrow. It could be between five to seven times the earnings, which you know if you're above that, you might be looking at a little too much too much debt. Um, but you know if uh, that that's what allows the returns to be so meaningful because all they have to do is outperform the cost of capital which has recently gone up drastically 
but you know, <laughs> three years ago was 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 zero. It was almost it was almost nothing. Twelve months ago, it was zero. Twelve months ago, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, here yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And also, I think too, you know, understanding if you're a business owner selling to private equity. I mean, if you do sell for five, six, seven times your EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA, you know, certainly the exit strategy for these guys is. Um, well, first of all, thing I'll say is be a little bit mindful um, in terms of what fees they take along the way of the journey, particularly if you're staying in the game. But um, but of course, when they go to exit, they're hoping to sell the thing for twelve times or list it on the stock exchange for twenty times, or you know, so that they will make their money. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I I call it riding the backs of the smartest investors in the world. Right? Absolutely. So yeah. as long as you make sure that that's in fact where they are. And how do you do that? It's just by asking simple questions like, "What is your? Um, how do you compare to the the benchmark? Um, you know, in terms of your returns." But you got to ask the questions like that are people are uncomfortable because they're thinking, "I've got a buyer. I'm excited. Someone wants to buy my company," and so they they don't want to ask what they perceive as the wrong question. And um, that's the area where I think having an advisor to help in that process because if you know, even if I went back to my first time, knowing what I know now. Well, now I, I could advise myself, right? But I learned I learned through the 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 value or the the financial value lost for that education, um, or what I'll call spent for that education, was a lot, right? I spent a lot of that was by far way more expensive than any college will ever cost anyone. You know, you know, I, I'll share a tip with anybody listening. You know, that's that's interested, but um. You know, I've done enough deals out there and been involved enough things with my own money, with supporting clients, and we have a bit of a rule internally here is that, you know, once transactions get over a certain size, we insist that nobody goes to meetings with other parties on their own. Um, and, and the reason for that is that every single person on our team is experienced, every single person on our team is able to actually help handle a meeting, ask questions, follow a process, all that stuff. But what you're not seeing is that when you're sitting across and there's there's three or four other people sitting on the other side of the table, you're having a conversation. When a question get gets asked, sometimes it's not what they say, it's how they say it. And I always find that my colleague will be looking on the room, looking at the faces of the other people not talking, right? Their, their perception of what the question was and what the answer was will be different to yours. They take away completely different things. They see different things. And the ability to kind of walk out of that meeting and then kind of debrief and go, oh, wow, you saw that? You thought that? I was thinking this. Like that that sort of back and forth is, is invaluable. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. One of the things people tend to do when they walk into these meetings is they think, I'm just going to be me and not role yeah. play. Uh, so if there's one piece of advice I'd give to anybody, it's role play because when you're there, I mean, even in this podcast right now, I'm trying to listen directly to you, right? I have no idea when the audience is watching this, how my body language, because all I'm trying to do is pay attention to our conversation and be present. Somebody needs to be there with me if I'm actually not, not doing this, but if I'm selling a company, right? I need people there with me that are able to watch the body language of all the participants, that are able to debrief after and then role playing before just so because here's what people don't want right you don't want to buy a business where the entrepreneur doesn't have an intentional approach to whatever they're going to do when they're unclear um it, the the one of the terms that i i don't remember who said it but somebody it wasn't me i have no and and i i'm, I'm always uh very you know transparent on the fact that 
everything I do and learn is from somebody else. I never create the wheel. I never create the quote, right? But this was the quote was um, how you do one thing is indicative of how you will do everything. Yep, absolutely. I firmly believe that that's true. And how you show yourself is, is going to be the assumption of how the, the, the buyer will look at you. So, you know, do your research on who you're meeting. Try to figure out what they're, what they're probably looking for. Because I assume, unlike my experience, most people will get asked, why are they trying to sell their firm? Yeah. Do you know, I, I, if I can share a small little um, analogy here too, you know, because I love that expression. I've used that many times myself. I need to look up who coined the phrase because I, like you, I can't remember who it was. But, um, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything because it's and, – and I say to our clients sometimes, the whole point of being ready to go into these discussions and this kind of, you know, like a due diligence, and I keep saying to them, like, how would you feel if you were going to buy a company and you ask them for a provisional set of financials because we're halfway through the year and they take two weeks to get them back to you? Like, this is an easy document. You should be able to press a button and have that instantly and you're scrambling around trying to find something so basic. Like, Yeah, that, and that, that's the scoreboard. Those financials, meaning if you can't produce that, means that means you don't even know how what your score is. Are you winning or losing this year? Right? Totally, if, bro. If you're, if you're the CEO and you don't know your numbers and you're not closing on month's end and you're not able to kind of give that information rapidly, it's like where where is your time and attention? Because it's just a matter of luck between whether you got to where you got and nothing can be about luck, right? Everything has to be about the the intentional, <laughs> intentional, and the the normal entrepreneurial model needs that other operator, right? Because we ch- entrepreneurs tend to chase the next shiny object. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of this myself, and even now, so I'm here. Yep. <laughs> I've got partners today that are you know very strong at helping me not chase it, but I still you know now that we're in in the opposite side where I'm the one quote unquote buying. Um, I don't like to call it acquisitions. I call our, our ours as partnerships. The reason I call it is because we began this with it ended up being eight firms that rolled uh, were committed to rolling a hundred percent equity, right? So no cash on the table. But the, what I explained to them, it took a while. It started with that one firm I was explaining earlier that was the best benefits consultant in the country that I found and then, you know, called him and I was like, Hey, would you have any interest? And he said, hell no. I'm, I'm, in, I'm saying independent forever. And I'm like, that was what I, I was hoping you'd say. And he was like, well, why would you hope I'd say that? And I'm like, because then I know you're not going to talk to anybody else. And once I explain to you what I'm going to bring to you, then all you have to do is keep doing what you're doing. And I'm either going to bring to you what I'm going to explain to you and you'll, you'll say yes. Or, you know, you'll go through it and you'll say it's not for you. But the reality is you can't grow on your own organically as fast as I can help you grow. And the value of your stock with me doing acquisitions and you keeping growing, and he's growing organically at almost a 40% clip. But that's nothing compared to a 300% clip, which is what inorganic can bring you. And so all the private equity sort of playbook is what, I began approaching it with, and then you know, once we brought together the firms, we were literally closing on our quality of earnings. So for the participants, that means we hired an outside firm 
in order to determine what each of these partners actual um, profits were for each of the businesses. And, um, and, and each of the firms didn't know each other because our whole model was you can completely remain, have your autonomy. I'm not, so I did, I started every conversation with what would you look for? If you, not if you were looking to exit, but in a partner, because with partnerships, you can do more, right? So I call it partnerships, which helps you diversify and that diversification can help you win. Well, I think it speaks a lot to your culture and I think it speaks a lot to entrepreneurs went into business for themselves because they don't want to be told what to do by people. So, you know, if you're not talking about partnership and collaboration and one plus one equaling three, you've lost your audience, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, so our competitors buy uh, the firms, right? And, and they immediately want you to become an employee. Now, if, you, if you're an entrepreneur, enough cash will get you to temporarily be an employee. But when they take away your decision-making authority, which is what make what what your intuition feels good about, you're not going to last long there. I mean, you know, it's really hard to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go from making my own decisions with accountability. I'm sure there's usually with a more mature firm, there'll at least be some form of accountability, whether we call it governance or a board of advisors, or, um, or, or it could just be the entrepreneur, but he has a business partner, or there. The entrepreneur may not have any governance. Uh, I'm a big fan of governance, even if governance isn't formal, meaning it's not because someone else owns your company. I just simply think everybody should be accountable um, because you know my own mistakes were that when I wasn't accountable to anyone, when I treated it like, oh, I'm the boss, everyone just should do what I say, that's usually when we didn't, when all the, the sort of surprises came up. Because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking around the corner. I didn't have the right people around. Here, this was very different because my approach was like, I'm not, this time it wasn't, it wasn't organic. It was, I'm going to go find the best entrepreneurs I can find, but I'm going to, and, and bring people together in a community. And then by doing an equity swap, we get to leverage the value that a giant company um, would leverage. So all the private equity things that can help create value creation, i.e., uh, increase the enterprise value. And then, so we were literally about to close on the merger of eight firms. And when I say merger, no integration, um, no brand name changing, simply an equity swap. Right. And then. Can I ask a quick question on that though? And, and, and this is fascinating stuff to me because I just, you know, I love hearing about different models and methods of, of engaging and growing. And, um, when you, when you've, done this merger, this partnership, is as part of the overall leverage, do you, are you coming in with additional, like, do you provide additional systems? Do you provide additional resources? Like, where is, where is there a leverage point in this partnership beyond just bigger, a bigger enterprise value? So when it began day one, um, it was a core values approach of saying, I'm, I'm beginning this now. I just had just sold my firm, right? So, um, but what I learned the process was I, I want to bring a partner driven where, so the first firm that I'm referencing that kind of, that joined, it was a, I'm going to build the resources based on you. You tell me what you'd want because that's what's missing from the market. It's typically right now, the buyers are the people who say, I'm going to buy your business. You're going to be an employee at my company. You might own 20% in stock and the rest is cash. But like you are an employee, make no mistake, right? And 
that that's what they want to make sure you know. It's more about them. My model is I don't care if you ever hear about the brand name that I represent because I'm here to help all the other entrepreneurs that are going to be part of our community. And over time, the because by sharing the same core values, you know, uh, the no a-hole rule, that's one of the most critical ones. The idea that's that <laughs> the idea that collaboration is valuable, right? Which um, I don't know anyone who would say it's not valuable. But the and then the concept of if you don't know what you don't know, which is that most of the firms I call are they're they're growing very rapidly and they're younger firms. And I say, why are they younger firms? Because the average average firm that is in, in the insurance industry is owned by someone that is 60 plus. So, you know, what ends up happening if you buy that firm is you, all the relationship capital is with someone who could retire in the next three years and doesn't have a succession plan. All right. So I wanted to go after some younger firms to say, okay, let's let's build this for a 20 year horizon. We don't have to hit it overnight, but, you know, it was... The goal at the beginning was to go to private equity and get them to back me at the beginning. And they all said, absolutely not. Right? They said, you, you got to come to the table with at least $5 million of EBITDA. Based in, and I'm like, well, how would I do that? And thankfully, that was you know, calling on people at, that became advisors and asked them, how could I set this up? And they kind of guided me through it. Now, it, was it easy? No, but you know, uh, if someone's thinking about doing a roll-up in their industry and they're trying to figure out the same thing, I'm happy to advise people on that specific aspect. Everything else, you should be the advisor on, not me. Um, but as it relates to that, I mean, I think what I ended up learning is right before we um, merged, we did get the private equity firm to come in and say, "You have you've organized all these deals. They're all exclusive LOIs that have been signed. Valuations have all been set." Um, instead of you going through the formality of merging, why don't we come in and be your capital partner and we'll facilitate this merger? And so, so that's where we were in the middle um, right now. We've signed, we signed that about a month and a half ago. Everyone's qualities of earnings are done. Um, and by, you know, right now it's set that by the end of Q4, we'll com- we would have completed it. So it's a phased approach because to close eight deals at once is not literally possible. Right, so we're kind of doing a three, two, three, like three in um, November, you know, two in early December, and three in mid to late December. Oh wow, man, that's uh, that's a that's a that's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. So, like when we get off here, I'm I'm I'll be reading two purchase agreements and um, yeah, every single line item on there. So that, but but the nice thing is, I've got a working relationship with our capital partner to the degree that we're talking for an hour and a half a day and we have been for the last four months. Yeah, yeah. So and this has been an amazing story. I, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but I'm, I'm mindful how late it is for you and you've got businesses to buy and run and kids to raise. So um, Not buy, to partner yeah. with. I want to say yeah, to partner yeah. with because... Sorry, apologies. That's okay. Yes, it's just, it's just with, I, yeah. I feel the lingo is important. I don't, I just, but... Um, Language is very important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and that was a slip of the tongue for me. So apologies, but it's, well, it's a um, unique model. So not not everybody, everybody yeah. else usually does approach it to buy. I'm here to partner. Yeah, yeah. You know what it is? I think you said purchase agreement. So it was like my brain oh, yeah, yeah. slipped yeah. slip into normal mode. But, it's, but yeah, and I hear, man, I've I, I really enjoyed chatting. I, I said I could talk to you all day about this stuff. It's um, but but I'm I am very very appreciative of your time. You you have you do have a very different model to. 
I would say every other guest I've had on this episode on this on this podcast, and you know that's that's certainly over seventy of them. So um, I love what you're doing, and 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 maybe there's a follow up episode for us in in six twelve months time or something where we can unpack That'd some of this great. journey. Because- and because then it's closed, and you know by year by twenty twenty six we'll have a four hundred and fifty million dollar enterprise value. By twenty thirty we'll be a billion dollar enterprise. Now. Why do I say that? Because the more I say it publicly, that makes me publicly accountable to the whole world and everybody that watches. So I will make sure that happens. And but you know, I'm I'm happy I'm I'm happy to come back anytime. This has been you know a very pleasant conversation. Oh look, I appreciate that. Um, are you happy if people want to reach out to you? I, yeah, absolutely. I, I I'd say if they're reaching out on um, partnerships like meaning the unique model that I'm describing or, and wanting to do it. Absolutely. If they're in the insurance world or payroll world, call me anyways, just because, um, you know, they may not realize there's value, but there's value. Uh, but if they're thinking about what they're, you know, I, I'd say I, I would love to just tell the whole world that, Hey, if they have questions, but I think they have the questions, it's better to reach out to you. That's why I'm on this podcast, right? Because you can advise people as it relates to their deal. But as if it's industry specific in my industry, I want to hear from them because I, I, I more than likely want to partner with them. That's fantastic. Well, look, we're going to put up your LinkedIn profile. If there's any other sort of contact details you'd like to include, let us know. We'll, we'll put them in the show notes to make it easy for people and they're not sort of scrambling for a pen if they're driving and whatnot. But uh, LinkedIn's a great way to reach me. Honestly, that, that's the best bet. I respond to, to that. Um, in almost at least three to four times a day, I check that. So I think that, and then I'll give you, I'll give my email in case people do want it. Yeah, sweet. All right, cool. Well, and as we always say on the show, people, if you're going to reach out to Zane, please put a little note in there. Don't just do some random connection. Give him a little note. Let him know you heard him on the podcast. Uh, at least he has some context as to where you're coming from. So um, Zane, thank you once again, mate. I'm really appreciative of your time and, uh, and I look forward to uh, part two of our journey together. <laughs> Me too, Simon. I appreciate it too. Awesome. Thanks again for everyone for tuning into this episode. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Um, I'm, I'm just loving this model and I'm loving this idea of partnerships and collaboration over simple acquisition and, and you know, gobbling up other people and companies. So um, if you want to know more, you know, we've touched on so many issues here today. Please feel free to reach out to Exit Advisory Group at exitadvisory.com.au. Um, we're very happy to answer your questions around this stuff, you know, even if it's just a quick, uh, you know, virtual coffee and we can talk through some of the things you're, you're thinking about, we're happy to help. So thanks for joining us and uh, hope to see you at the next episode. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.